0: Hello, and welcome to the American Civil War Podcast, Episode 60, The Economics of Slavery, Sins of the Prophets. The wealth and power of Dixie was built on slavery and cotton in the main, and that is basically the topic that we're going to be exploring today. Today's episode represents a slight departure from the planned schedule too, but don't worry, we'll be right back to the main show soon enough. Today we'll look briefly at the economics of slavery, variations by region, and the debates and questions regarding it in the antebellum era. We'll also briefly touch upon the later historiography studying the question. My fumbling discussion necessarily represents only a tiny slice of the academic thinking regarding the question of slavery, the economics behind it, and its impact on the United States and the South. In fact, I've necessarily left out major topics. Uh, For instance, I am not investigating or analyze the impact of slavery on the North, except in the most tangential way. However, to make this part emphatically clear from the beginning, this is not, and will not be, a defense of slavery. There are two reasons for this. First, whether or not slavery was economically efficient, that can never make it morally right. And second, remember that by definition, the more profitable the slavery was to the slave master the more value extracted from slaves unwillingly and under threat of violence. The wonder of it all is not that slavery might benefit the slave driver, but that it apparently quite often didn't. Not only that, but this directly and indirectly affected the formation of the Confederacy. However, let us return to the origins of slavery to see, in essence, what happened. Without restating the entire story, Let's recall that the first slaves arrived, quite unwillingly, in Virginia back in 1619. They arrived in a small colony that had only just made it past the first few years of settlement. The colony still lacked a completely firm financial basis, owing to the expense of importing the many manufactured goods needed across the Atlantic. That said, the product which initially became connected to slavery, and which partly provided that financial advantage, was already coming into widespread cultivation. This was not cotton, but tobacco. Great Britain could cultivate at home many of the same products as Virginia, but not tobacco. And it proved a very valuable commodity, both within Britain and in wider global markets. That was, in large part, why the nascent Virginians purchased the slaves from Dutch merchant privateers. Well, At that point, it was not all that clear if these would be slaves, indentured servants, or free citizens. In fact, the ultimate answer turned out to be a mix of all three. Over time, however, the span of freedom narrowed instead of widening as for free white colonials. As tobacco cultivation expanded, more free British arrived to take part, and in aggregate, they bought more slaves. To be entirely clear, tobacco did not require slavery in any sense. None of the products of the plantation system ever did. But tobacco in particular required only seasonal labor, so slave owners always had a labor mismatch. In practice, they could and did hire slaves out, or put them to domestic use. As such, while slavery existed alongside tobacco cultivation, they were not viewed as contiguous or identifiable with one another. Many independent farmers with no slaves also grew and dried their own tobacco. Or they hired labor only when they needed it it may have been wrong but slavery in this form became fairly common in virginia and the nearby colony of maryland and even into southern pennsylvania new york had a separate foundation of slaveholding from the dutch however while less common slavery existed as far north as boston yet slavery in regions north of maryland had fewer advantages over free labor for a would-be slave owner sure it was extra labor but it was also ultimately another mouth to feed. Big commercialized plantations formed rarely in those regions, and so while the institution of slavery lingered, it also never really took over. The word plantation here is important. Now on its own, it has no connection to slavery. It means, as we discussed a very long time ago, nothing more or less than commercialized farming. This usually implies a single crop, or at least that the plantation focuses on one crop, which may or may not be food. Plantations can range from pineapples to indigo to olives and everything in between. In the United States, however, plantation agriculture often went hand-in-hand with slavery, in large part because the United States had no tradition of feudalism. When large landowners wanted more labor, they had to pay for it in some fashion. Rather than pay for the workers to come over from Britain, workers who often skid out long before their contracts ended they came to prefer slaves. The law, in theory, would enforce an indenture contract. But in terms of cold and callous fact, landowners simply found it far easier to identify and control African or African-American slaves. They were identified and identifiable as the other, and slave owners found it easier to treat them as people partially outside the moral community. That said, Slaves did not exist entirely outside that community. Manumission remained common for a long time, and slaves could and did earn money working on the side. Slavery in regions north of Maryland slowly declined. But south of Virginia, another form of slavery took hold. South Carolina's founders came from the Caribbean, and they brought a subtly different practice of it to the colonies. Caribbean slavery, uh, to put it mildly, uh, tended towards utter monstrosity. It was often so profitable in terms of producing valuable goods, particularly sugar, the slave owners treated slaves as literal disposable machines. Now, not every colony was as bad as San domingue today known as Haiti, but it was still pretty horrific. In South Carolina, the planters soon discovered that the warm, wet coastal region could support extensive rice cultivation. Before long, many very productive rice plantations sprang up. Instead of doing the work themselves, of course, the planters bought slaves. And in some areas, they also began to plant cotton, at that time difficult to cultivate and properly work. Rice and cotton plantations had one other major difference compared to tobacco. They didn't wear out the soil over time. This became something of a long-term limiting factor for tobacco, but not these other crops. Following the Revolutionary War, many of the old Virginia plantations began to lose strength. Americans pushed out into new frontiers, making Kentucky the new huge tobacco growing region. And yet, although slavery moved west with it, these again never completely dominated economic life. Now, for practical reasons, we are going to leave sugar and indigo mostly out of the story here. They were important crops in their own way, but relatively marginal to the economy of the United States in this period. That said, Indigo plantations existed alongside cotton and rice. Some sugar plantations occupied entire islands in the Gulf, acquired once the United States incorporated Louisiana. But because these were limited to only specific regions, much as cotton was in the early years, they're not as important to the overall story. Now again, following the American Revolution, when it seemed that slavery might enter a permanent decline, the cotton gin renewed the peculiar institution's lease on life. It allowed cotton cultivation to profitably spread far inland, and slavery followed in its wake. Indeed, once Americans began to dominate the Mississippi, slaveholders turned that into an archery of slavery, as well as commerce and communication, and slavery spread both up and down the river's length. One very good question, however, is why this happened. Cotton did not require slaves to pick and grow it any more than tobacco. But put a pin in that idea as we'll return to the point. Many free families, whether of European or African origin, farmed their own cotton and sold it on the market alongside slave drivers. Now, all of that was building up to this. The economic data strongly suggests that slavery was not more productive than free labor. However, plantations with large slave holdings tended to drive the cotton economy far more than free farming. How do we square these ideas? First, remember that slavery did not begin with large plantations. Many free families had originally purchased just a slave or two. However, by 1860, we see that slaveholding had slowly become more and more concentrated. That is, there were fewer slaveholding families, they were much wealthier, and they owned more slaves. It was possible to break into the ranks of these slaveholders but increasingly difficult. Not coincidentally, they also increasingly formed strong family ties among other wealthy slaveholders. At a basic level, the process here is fairly comprehensible. Slaveholders drove profits by, in economic terms, underpaying their workforce. No free laborer would work for two small portions of food, sleep in a rotting shack on the bare ground, and go about clad in the very cheapest clothing. Only the most destitute of urban poor would live a lifestyle nearly that bad. Any healthy man could do better, often the unhealthy ones too. And even free African Americans, who face the social disadvantage of racism, would do better. For comparison, remember that in our last episode, Ulysses Grant had a terrible time starting up a working farm that would deliver a sufficient lifestyle for his family. Even so, however he had at minimum assets worth several thousand dollars and could bring in a crop to feed his family the house he dubbed hard scrabble actually still exists today and was rather decent accommodation for the time people could and did thrive with less but slaves received far far less than that for comparison settlers during the later great plains migration would often build sod houses using well Dirt walls, dirt floors, and dirt roofs. But these were only temporary dwellings intended for a few years, and they were still much superior to slave quarters. The family wouldn't have much furniture, but they brought some with them, so it was there. And by contrast, most slaves lived in shacks, generally unworthy of even that lofty title. They didn't have doors, and certainly not windows. The shacks generally had little more than room to lay down and sleep, often on bare earth. And that was only the lodgings. Slaves received poor food and of limited quantity. Now, as a side note, I went and did some estimates on the food given to slaves based on some abolitionist sources. These may be biased, but for numerous reasons, it's probably the best we have. I came to a rough guess that slaves had a significant caloric deficit of several thousand a week, which they would have to make up somehow by fishing or gardening or even theft. For all their protestations of generosity... Sources are generally clear that few slave owners particularly cared to feed their slaves very well on plantations. That was just another expense. Now, we can say, based on photographic evidence and the fact that slave populations increased roughly in line with free white ones, that it looks as though slaves did manage to get enough to eat on balance. But again, that includes their own ingenuity and hard work in their limited free time. As for clothing, well... It seems that traditionally slaves received more or less one suit of clothes every year. But in a hot, humid climate, slaves labored in the dirt and sun and rain. Indeed, on many plantations, slaves were more or less worked day to day in swamps. Their clothing necessarily degraded much faster than normal. Some observers reported seeing slaves working naked, either because they had no clothing, or because they wanted to preserve what little dignity they had for Sunday. All of that, in short, explains how slaveholders made money. Short, sure, they spent up front to acquire slaves, but thereafter paid as little as possible to sustain them. Oddly enough, this is also why slave owners were not part of the burgeoning capitalist class, and in fact saw themselves as explicitly outside and against it. Whether you consider it good, bad, or indifferent, capitalists hoped to rationalize production. They wanted to overcome the limitations of widespread local and handicraft systems. In the world of capital, labor was an expense, if a valuable one. Capitalism formed also outside of the slave system. Indeed, in the United States, it formed where slavery declined and finally died, and this was no coincidence. Among other things, capitalists needed markets, and slaves had little or no cash to spend on manufactured consumer goods. The 19th and 20th centuries, unfortunately, did show that slaves can labor in factories, even when cruelly worked to death. However, these tended not to produce all that much in the end, and of course, such arrangements ultimately required guards and observation day and night. Industrial slavery simply does not have a great track record competing with free labor. And in the United States specifically, slaves rarely knew how to read and write, rapidly becoming absolute necessities to industry. Slave owners, however, cut the costs out of the system. Even if it produced no better or even less than free labor, the profits did not go to 10 or 20 families. Instead, it went to one household. Slave owners could and did buy plenty of luxuries, but they also spent on two items of particular importance in this economic system, more land and more slaves. This explains why wealth concentrated in plantations. Slavery created a vicious cycle where the winners could buy up the productive resources and lock out economic challenges from free labor. We've also touched on the other side of this story before. Remember that the Lincoln family, for instance, had a distinct anti-slavery bent even though they initially settled in Kentucky, a slave state. It was a slave state because they and many others of the early settlers came from Virginia or actually, Kentucky was originally part of Virginia. They left Old Virginia precisely because the plantations limited their economic prospects. And yet, even for slave owners, there was a bit of a problem to all this. First, as mentioned, the tobacco plantations tended to wear out the soil, and the plantation owners didn't exactly make much of an effort to adjust their farming practices or end the slave system. Doing so could have well been financially beneficial in the long run, but it would have required them to make a sacrifice in the short run. But second, and more significantly, slavery became dependent on the cotton trade. Slaves probably spent as much time farming corn, wheat, beans, or other food crops as they did cotton, but it was cotton that fueled the slave economy. By 1860, American slavery became almost entirely dependent on cotton. Indeed, this occurred to such degree that the cotton trade was essentially viewed as intrinsically identifiable with cotton plantations, with slave plantations. Now, the food crops fed the South in large part, but ultimately the profits for all those luxuries came from the cotton. Sir Charles Lyell, a famous Scottish scientist, wrote that, To sell cotton in order to buy slaves, to make more cotton, to buy more slaves, ad infinitum, is the aim and direct tendency of all the operation of the thoroughgoing cotton planter. Full disclosure, I have edited the original comment not because it uses foul language, but just to avoid making anyone uncomfortable. Now, do you remember that point earlier, where we made sure to note that slavery wasn't required for growing cotton? One group that disagreed strenuously with that notion were slaveholders. They proclaimed to anyone who would listen that only slaves could endure the conditions, and only slaves could stand to grow the cotton. This, of course, would have been something of a surprise to the free families who did so, including European immigrants. Behind this idea lay an incredible amount of hypocrisy and cruelty. In reality, black slaves simply couldn't escape the harsh climate in summer, or the seasonal waves of illness such as malaria and yellow fever, because the slave owners forcibly kept them on the plantations. The owner of such a plantation could spend the summer season in more congenial climates buy simple mosquito nets for safety, and pick the driest and safest locations available for a home. The slaves simply had to endure, stuck on the plantation environment. And if one died, the slave owners would simply call it bad luck, and pretend that their actions had nothing to do with it. There is some, and only some, truth in the notion that Europeans unaccustomed to the tropical climate faced high mortality. But what free men often saw as exceptional and horrifying was simply the everyday reality for slaves. They either survived the sick season and grew used to it, or just died. In the field of health and medicine, too, slaveholders held back as much as possible. While eagerly telling stories of how they mercifully attended to sick slaves, they also tended not to spend on doctors. Slaves frequently had to work while sick, received little or no medicine, leading many to rely on folk treatments, although a few of those had real value. As a side note on that, folk remedies that did no good were hardly limited to the African-American community. Much of the same thing popped up, well, everywhere in America, and, well, in the wider world as well. This all happened for the same reason. At this point, there was little access to confirmed medical knowledge. The state of medical understanding in the mid-19th century was still very primitive by modern standards. Yet trained doctors at least knew physiology and had some tested remedies. Knowledge that we take for granted today, such as an understanding of disease, sterilization, anesthesia, and basic surgical techniques, had begun to follow scientific investigation in the late antebellum era. But these revolutionary techniques well, they had just started to influence medical practice at a time when the Civil War began. And for most people, slaves were free. It was just plain hard to tell a quack from a legitimate doctor. It's also hard to guess which would be worse for the patient, given that medical professionals often did serious damage to the body by inflicting cuts or burns in ignorant and outdated knowledge. Well, so much for medicine. Now, in coldly economic terms, too, slavery was not free to society and this is where we're getting into the heart of the question so far we've mostly discussed the costs of slaveholding and the benefits to individual slaveholders but of course that's a very tight and microeconomic view from a macroeconomic viewpoint slavery had huge costs that slave drivers themselves strenuously avoided in the general sense Slaveholders worked explicitly to create a sense of racial separatism. As we have discussed before, there was pre-existing prejudice and racism in American society. Neither the American colonies nor Britain before it were enlightened on the idea of ethnic equality. Perhaps no place on earth had ever been entirely free of prejudice. However, in the colonies and also the Caribbean, many slave owners came to intentionally create a sense of racial superiority. And this had a broad impact on society. They did so in a few ways, but primarily by constantly beating the drum on the subject. To justify slavery, African Americans could not be equal, and so the very idea must receive immediate challenge whenever expressed. One specific example of how they communicated this idea was to insist that slaves were actually fortunate and ought to be grateful. Slave owners, and those willing to support slavery, portrayed Africa as a benighted place devoid of civilization. Now, unfortunately, we don't have time today to go in all the ways that Africa, or even West Africa alone, completely disproves the slave master's preferred image of a savage in lawless primitivism. Now, that might be a worthy episode someday, but it is a huge topic. There were, and had been, many strong and technologically developed civilizations in Africa. Speaking of West Africa alone, we see some of the finest metalwork in history often surpassing contemporary european work but we've also mentioned one of the more significant technologies because west africa had a highly effective agricultural system although of course it is a very large and diverse region geographically much of the region does have relatively thin soil but the peoples of africa found brilliant ways to make the most of it and in fact this is one reason why europeans wanted african slaves they already had the knowledge and skills to effectively create intensive agriculture in the Americas. Bitterly, the impact of this expertise often went entirely unrecognized. However, slave owners did not simply rely on a general feeling or sense of racial superiority. As they had wealth and social influence and dominated political positions in the South, slave owners also passed laws to control African Americans free and enslaved. More to the point, they were very often the same men enforcing those laws, which gave them a rather sizable amount of social control. For example, put yourself in the shoes of an antebellum slave. In much of the South, it was explicitly illegal to teach you how to read. If you did attain your freedom, a difficult and daunting prospect but which did happen, you might be forced by law to leave home or surrender yourself back to slavery. Yes, that that was a thing that happened. If you avoided those troubles, there might be no regular schools at which you or your children could learn because authorities harassed or just forcibly closed them. And in all of this, you might have to rely on sympathetic white men for legal assistance. African Americans could not testify in court, and certainly would not be getting law degrees. The authorities, and often just random people, had pretty much free license to abuse you on a whim. But in a more specific point, slave owners kept the militia system active. Militias and slave patrols watched for any sign of uprising, and sometimes just invented them out of sheer paranoia. Slave patrols watched the roads and checked that every slave must have a pass to travel. And woe to any caught without one. The punishments available might start with a severe lashing, but some slaves who tried to escape, or who were just caught out by circumstances, could bear lifelong injuries for their trouble some never made it back home alive. Needless to say, no free state would go to that much trouble just to chase down and hurt anyone short of an escaped prisoner, and of course the similarities between slaves and prisoners are, well, obvious. But slave patrols were not free, even though the slave owners legally mandated that free men do them for nothing. They represented time and effort that could have gone to other matters, whether production or recreation Or self-improvement through education. And all of these methods of control existed just to ensure that slaves had few escape methods. And it did work. But we can also say that it had a terrible price for society. Certainly the aggregate effect of all of this was to brutalize white culture. It became normalized to exert everyday violence against African Americans, and that violence had no social restraint. But of course these have invisible economic costs. Yes, slaves could produce, though probably not as much as free labor, but they did not consume. Instead, slave owners took the wealth and reinvested in land and slaves. And while increasing their level of control ever more, this practice also fundamentally broke the feedback loop of economic growth. The South had once been partly dependent on tobacco exports. Now, entire states became almost entirely dependent on cotton exports. The South grew little industry and seemed less and less interested in starting it. Those industries that existed struggled against Northern and European imports. Although this was a source of grievances against Northern manufacturers, it was Southern slaveholders themselves who caused the situation. While in part, the South would have an economic advantage in agriculture and disadvantages in some areas of manufacturing, real opportunities existed. But would-be southern industrialists often could not assemble the economic or human capital to compete successfully. That available capital went into land and slaves. At the same time, those who might work against the existing system ultimately resigned themselves to it, or just left. Population drain was a real issue in parts of the South, or rather than drain, relative stagnation. The decades preceding the Civil War were years of explosive population growth in all of the northern states, but not the South. Just to take two examples, the state of Ohio's first census took place in 1790. Even allowing for a few decades of extremely high growth in the early years, the state easily overtook South Carolina's population before 1820. And then Ohio's population quadrupled again before 1860, whereas South Carolina's numbers barely budged. By comparison, Virginia did somewhat better, but not especially well. And even a young and fast-growing slaveholding state like Mississippi could not compete for population growth compared with a state partially driven by slavery like Missouri, let alone Ohio or New York. Simply put, the states dominated by slaveholding lacked most of the economic opportunities for immigrants. In the Upper South, in fact, one of the major sources of cash for slaveholders became selling slaves to the Deep South. And that is in fact partly why states like Mississippi grew at all. Masters sometimes brought slave gangs into the region and often purchased them from the Upper South. And again, although more profitable for slave owners, it ultimately did little good for the Southern economy. If anything, the cotton trade helped grow the North and Europe, which invested in commerce and long-term industrial enterprises and realized the benefits from them. Many Southerners recognized the problem, and they tried to change things. DeBose's review began as a journalistic endeavor devoted to the gospel of industrialization. Yet the publication slowly turned into an interesting literary journal, paying little more than lip service to industry, but cheering on slavery as it was. Another contemporary Southern voice arguing that slavery hindered the economy was Hinton Rowan Helper, a North Carolina man. He wrote The Impending Crisis of the South and published in 1857. While not what we would call up to the best standards of writing and economics, Helper did point out many of the flaws of the slave system. We should understand, though, that Helper still reviewed race through an extreme white supremacist lens. He only wanted to help white men as he saw it, not African Americans. However, Helper actually targeted slavery and seemingly its strongest point, agriculture. He compared the productivity of northern and southern states in an attempt to prove that, well, there was a real problem. Now, when radicals such as John C. Calhoun realized how fast the northern states grew and kept growing, he instinctively fell back on defending the slave system. Therefore, slave owners treated it as a necessary fact that said growth must somehow be because the North cheated or exploited the South. Helper agreed with the implicit point that the growth would have been more even between the sections, but pointed to slavery as the cause for the difference. And he may actually have been right on that. Slave owners looked at the bales of cotton and bundles of tobacco, piled up to the sky on the wharves of Baltimore and New Orleans, as proof that slavery worked. But even those men who laughed at morality and tried to exact every ounce of labor from their slaves, rarely had the mental equipment to do so. American literacy rates ran high, including among the planter class, but they generally had no clear model of analyzing productivity, and spent very little time on it. Indeed, quite a few seem to have left no clear written trail at all, or only a very sloppy one of receipts in the odd legal document, one reason they frequently fell into debt. While certainly far from living paycheck to paycheck, many did live harvest to harvest. The lack of documentation, combined with the sheer scale and diversity of the problem, helped make it very difficult to clearly analyze the slave system in retrospect. To a degree, every plantation was its own world. Now, Generally speaking, the earliest investigations felt that slavery was unprofitable compared to economic alternatives as a rule. Now, unfortunately, much of this analysis, which was popular in the 1920s, engaged in overt or covert racism and assumed the very best of the slave owners, their actions and motives. There are reasons to believe that slavery lived on borrowed time. There are good reasons to think that it was economically irrational. But neither of these stem from hearts overflowing with the joyful love of all humanity. In major parts of the border states in the Upper South, It appeared even to many slave owners that the vitality of their institution was draining away towards the Mississippi. In parts of Maryland and Virginia especially, many planters began to fear that they would lose their, well, esteemed social privilege and position. In any case, this school was popular during the reactionary Wilsonian period. Now a later school, operating in part contemporaneously with the civil rights movement, looked at slavery in a much harsher light. They concluded that it was indeed profitable, and the profit simply came from the exploitation of the workers. You may be able to see some amount of Marxist analysis in there as well. Now, this isn't wrong, but there are some limitations to this viewpoint. It's arguably correct in its interpretation of the exploitation of slaves, but it didn't necessarily take into account the overall impact of slavery on the developing economy. More recent analysis has focused on areas of understanding how slaves themselves participated in the larger economy, or even created economies among themselves. Macroeconomic views have also stepped back to look at how slavery affected the southern economy, noting, for instance, that it impeded the development of railroads. Similar studies have looked at how, in essence, slaveholders forced the continuation of agrarianism in order to maintain social control over slaves. Many of these analyses concluded that slavery had deep and self-destructive flaws. Whether or not it was bound for destruction, something had to change. But in their pursuit of permanent power, slave owners in 1861 could not accept this. And trying to maintain their position forever, they instead created the conditions for a new revolution. And they believed that their system was strong, but swiftly discovered to their horror that, uh, nobody else agreed. In particular, the British government disagreed very strongly with the notion that slavery was here to stay, and their opinion carried a certain weight wherever the oceans reached. And crucially, when Southerners thought that, well, they had to have the slaves so they could grow the cotton, Britain instead looked to Egypt and India, ancient cotton-growing regions, for a new source of supply. In the end, the Civil War proved that, well, the South was wrong. And they always had been. Thank you for diving into this uh, difficult and somewhat painful topic with me. I appreciate everyone's support. This has been the American Civil War Podcast. Thank you for listening, and I hope you'll join us next time.